Well, good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. I have to start this service by asking for a little bit of grace because you allowed me to go to Israel for the last two weeks, and I'm 48 hours off a plane, so it's a little crazy right now in my world and where I am. And so I tell you, it's an absolutely amazing trip, uh, and now that I've been, we're going to have to start Matthew all over again, right? Because <laughs> that's what happens when you go to a place like that. You go, I thought I knew my Bible, and you get there and go, no, I don't think I do. <laughs> you know, It was absolutely great. I learned so much, and I'm going to do my best to try not to squeeze it all into just this sermon. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, Matthew chapter 26, that's where we're going to camp and spend a little time, Matthew 26. Last week, while Pastor James was preaching about the Last Supper and the Upper Room, I had the pr uh, privilege with Pastor Dan to be sitting in the Upper Room and to sit there and experience that and to see that, and it really does change your perspective of that, and your changes your understanding of that in a fresh and new way. Because in that moment, I don't know if you realize that, in that moment, Jesus is hours away from his arrest. Like hours, just hours away from him being arrested. And my thought was, if I knew that I was going to be killed in just a few hours, what would I be doing? How about you? If you knew that you had hours to live, what would you be doing? With whom would you be spending your time? I mean, for Jesus, he gathered his disciples together and he washes their feet. Something I probably would never have thought of if I had hours to live. That's what he does. And not only does he wash their feet, he even washes the feet of Judas, like the betrayer, who he knows is going to betray him, he washes his feet too. Now, I know I wouldn't be doing that. And so in that moment, Jesus begins to experience some things. He begins to lay out this Passover meal. But at the end of the meal, he begins to transform what that meal actually means. He transforms it from meeting the Passover from this sort of Jewish sacrifice of a lamb to commemorate God's deliverance of the people of God from slavery in Egypt. He flips it and he changes it to a remembrance of the sacrifice of the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus the Christ. And what you're going to find all throughout this text is this pattern of the disciples being physically present but spiritually unaware. Physically present, spiritually unaware. Like they're in the room when things happen, so they're physically present, but they don't get what's really going on. And we've seen this pattern before. If you've been with us at all through this series in Matthew, which how could you not have been? We've been in it forever. But if you think back to Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration, You've got Jesus, he goes up on the mountaintop and he brings his boys, Peter, James, and John. They all show up there and he shows himself differently. And right beside him, you've got Moses and you've got Elijah right by his side. And if you remember the story, Peter speaks up and is like, wow, this is awesome. It is so good to be here. Like I should build a little shelter and we should just stay here like this forever. Forget about all of them. We should just stay here just like this. It's like a total swing and a miss. Peter is physically present, 
but totally spiritually unaware of what's happening. It happened when Jesus was in his series of miracles he did on the Sermon on the Mount and more. And while the disciples were viewing this like every other Passover meal that they had ever participated in, for Jesus, this is it. This is the last Passover meal. His betrayal by a close friend looms. You've got the beating looms. His arrest looms. The cross looms. Everything is about to change for him. And verse 30 begins to give us some context for what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 30, this is what it says. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And some of you are like, sung a hymn, not those dumb worship choruses that they sing at my church. But have you ever thought about like what hymn they may have sung? Because if you're thinking Amazing Grace, right? If you're thinking, oh, they had to sing the old rugged cross, they sang, great is thy faithfulness. No, no, those would have been dismissed as modern day worship choruses. And some of you are like, oh, I hate you, (laughs) right? Uh, Because that's what would have happened. Because you know what they actually sang? They sang Psalm 118. That's the song they sang at the end of the Last Supper. This is what it says. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say the same thing. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cry to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. This psalm, this hymn, ends with, in verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. That's the song they sang. But that's a messianic prophecy. Now remember, Jesus is singing and the disciples are singing. You think the disciples understand that that song they're singing is about that guy? No. Physically present, spiritually unaware. But then it says that they went out to the Mount of Olives. I walked that last week. And here's why this verse is deeper than you might think. So Jesus gets to the upper room about 3 p.m. But they don't eat dinner until 7 p.m. Why? Because that's how long it takes to prepare the lamb and cook a lamb. And then during that 7 p.m., they cook the lamb, they eat. And there are four main moments during that Passover meal where at the end of that moment, you drink a cup of wine. And some of you are like, amen, like, right? So four sections where you stop and you drink a cup of wine. Then the dinner would end about 11 at night. 
and they began this 1.5 mile walk to the Mount of Olives. And you think, how far is that? Because in my mind, I always thought, man, they walked forever. No, it's like walking from here to the Winn-Dixie, right there at 9th and 62nd. That's 1.5 miles. That's all the farther they walked. Because the point isn't the distance. That's not it at all. It's what they saw. It's what they heard. It's what they smelled as they walked. And you're like, what are you talking about? I never realized that at that Passover meal, Jerusalem had 500,000 people showed up in that city. And you thought Disney World was packed. (laughs) And because of that, the historian Josephus Flavius says that 250,000 lambs were slaughtered and prepared for the sacrifice for that Passover meal. 250,000. How much is that? Like, that's a lot. And then my thought went, where does all that blood go? Because if you're draining the blood from 250,000 animals, you know where it goes? It comes out the eastern side of the temple. It goes right down in the Kidron Valley, and it runs right downhill in front of the southern steps and downhill all the way past the city of David. And you're like, well, why is that important? Well, Jesus is on a walk. He leaves the upper room with his disciples. The Lamb of God walked by the Temple Mount where he had just heard all these lambs being slaughtered and prepared. The Lamb of God walked through the blood of all of those lambs in order to get to the Mount of Olives. There's no other way there. Jesus walked through the blood of the lambs that were being sacrificed on his way to be prepared as the Lamb. He's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, praying as the lamb that would be sacrificed. What do you think Jesus was thinking as he made that trek through the blood of the lambs in preparation to be the blood of the lamb? And what do you think the disciples were thinking? They're walking through going, this is nasty. Someone ought to build a bridge here, right? Our feet are all messed up. Physically present spiritually unaware but then it says they went out to the mount of olives and 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 they got there and when they sat down it says that jesus dropped his sort of first bomb take a look at verse 31 it says then jesus told them this very night you will all fall away on account of me for it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered It's actually a quote from Zechariah 13. It's almost like Jesus is saying, oh, hey, guys, like I forgot to tell you one other thing. We had a great meal. It was a cool night and all. But, you know, y'all are going to fall away tonight. Just saying. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? Because that's not what they wanted to hear. They're like, no way. No way we're going to fall away. We just had a great night together. We just had some lamb. We just had some wine. We've got a renewed sense of purpose. And Jesus wasn't going, if you fall away. He was stating a fact. And that's not what they wanted to hear. And then Jesus says in verse 32, But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And if you look down at verse 56, you will indeed see that they all do leave him and flee. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks, but... Here, when Peter hears this, he reacts just as passionately and as quickly as he always does. Verse 33, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Not me, Jesus. Like those losers over there might, never me. And you know what I love about Peter? He's all passion and no polish, isn't he? All passion, no polish. Know anybody like that? 
Are you like that? All passion. I'm in. Oh, I should have asked my wife. That was me all the time. And Peter's some the same way. But don't forget here that, that Peter's going, God, never me. Never me, Lord. You must be mistaken. Jesus is talking about the same guys who just a couple hours earlier were arguing among themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And so in verse 34, Jesus looks right at Peter and says, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, Before the rooster crows, you will disown me, not once, not twice. You will disown me three times. Now, when you think about that, we don't have a lot of roosters in St. Petersburg unless you've got like, I don't know, city contraband chickens in your neighborhood or something. You know, that's not something we have a lot of roosters of. But some of you grew up in the country or maybe you traveled overseas and there's some things we know about roosters. They're loud. We know that they rise early. And we know that they are wickedly consistent. And so sure enough, Jesus says, Peter, before your alarm clock goes off, you're going to deny me three times. And what I find interesting is Peter never goes, why? He never asks a question of any kind. He never says that. And my thought was, Peter, you have no idea what's coming your way. What Peter is doing is he is reacting to the moment with no sense as to what God is doing. Ever done that? React in the moment without a sense of what God is doing? Yeah, me neither. He is physically (laughs) present, but he is not spiritually aware. He's not seeing what God is seeing. And then comes verse 35. It says, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So that's the Bible's way of saying they all went, me too, me too, me too, me too. They all said the same thing. And so sure enough, Peter even says, even if I die and everybody else says me too, that'll never happen with me. It's really a big story of them honestly missing the point. They're all physically present and spiritually unaware. They had no idea what Jesus was about to endure, and therefore what they would endure, because Jesus is clear in John chapter 15. Jesus says, look, if they persecute me, they're gonna persecute you. And so as you see my life getting sort of taken from me, bro, you better get in line, because that's what's coming for you as well. I think the bro was me adding that in, but something, it says something like that. But that's the idea. And so sure enough, that's exactly what ends up happening. And look at verse 36 now. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. So they made it to their destination and the talking as they walk is now over. And he comes to one of his absolute favorite places, a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. That's what it means. Right there on the Mount of Olives, a hill covered with olive trees is a garden that houses an olive press. It is the garden of the olive press. It looks something like this. That's a first century olive press. And after picking olives, they press olives three times. They gather all the olives together, and they put it at the end in in these baskets, and they attach one stone to the lever. And they lower that lever down, and it presses those olives. It 
applies intense pressure to these olives, and the first oil that comes out is the best oil. That's the oil that's bottled and sold. But then they go back, and they press those same olives a second time, and they add a second stone, and they increase the pressure on the olives. And they take the oil that comes out then, and they use that for cooking. But then they apply the most pressure a third time. They put three massive stones, thousands and thousands of pounds. They attach to these wooden levers, and they apply a third pressure, and they squeeze everything, every last drop they can possibly get out of those olives. And they take that, and they use that to light their lamps. They use that to make soaps and more. So understand what's happening here. Jesus goes to the place of pressing to now pray three times about the weight of the sins of the world, each time having them pressed upon him. Each time he goes back to pray, the weight gets heavier and heavier that's being pressed down on him. Think the disciples understood any of that? Physically present, spiritually unaware. Verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Luke's account tells us that he went a stone's throw away. That's an actual Roman measurement. I thought, whose arm? Right? But the distance is about from that corner of the room to that corner of the room. So he goes, Y'all go over there, and I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to pray. And I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus is going to turn to prayer, not like most of us do. Like most people are like, hey, let me pray for you. It's the least I could do. That's what we say. No, this isn't the least he can do. This isn't his last resort. This is Jesus modeling something incredible for us that I think is honestly the point of the whole passage. Even though it's surrounded by all sorts of layers of awesomeness, I think what Jesus is trying to show us is the first move that needs to be made is a move to prayer. Whatever's happening in your life, whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever's happening with your kids, whatever's going on at work, whatever is happening in your life, the first move that needs to be made is to prayer. Every move. But that's not what we do, is it? Because the first move we need to lean into is prayer. Why? Because that's where you're going to find the Lord. And that's who you need. That's where you're going to find the Father. That's where you're going to find the Father's will. And Jesus' natural instinct, his place of safety, his place of security, his place of hope and affirmation is in prayer with the Father. And I thought, is that true for me? Like, is that true for you? I didn't like my answer. And of all the things that the disciples wanted to know about, it was prayer. You notice the disciples never said, teach me how to do miracles. Teach me how to fast. Teach me how to read the Bible. Teach me how to preach like you preach. No, the disciples said, teach me to pray. I think they saw something modeled in the life of Jesus that was pretty special. They knew where from where his power came. It came through an intimacy cultivated with the Father, a daily practice that created a sense of oneness, a place of ensuring spiritual awareness. If you lack spiritual awareness, it's directly attached to your prayer life. And I read that and I thought, I can't say that. 
It's true. If I lack spiritual awareness in the world around me, it's attached to my prayer life. Not to my Bible reading, to my prayer life. And look at how this plays out in verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John again, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus is beginning to feel this weight upon him, a weight that you and I cannot fully understand. But think about this for a minute. Think about the last time you sinned. For some of you, like Kevin, that's like, <laughs> that's like this morning, right? I want you to think about the last time you had a mouthful of regret. Think about the last time you were like, what was I thinking? You know when you had that Romans 7 moment? Why is it that I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do? Why is that? What's the, think about the last time you sat right there. In the Psalms, David said, David said that when he kept silent about his sin, his bones wasted away within him. The weight of sin is upon me. What Jesus is experiencing in this moment with this pressure that's coming down on him is a recognition and a spiritual awareness that he wasn't about to deal with the sins of one person. He was about to deal with the sins of all people. And the weight of the sin of all of humanity were about to be placed on him. He's staring down the barrel now of sin, and Jesus had no category for that he was made like us in all things, yet found without sin. And so Jesus had no concept of what that weight felt like. And he's about to experience the weight of the world. All three stones attached, pressing down on him. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans chapter 3 says that God displayed Jesus publicly as satisfaction of the wrath of God. Romans chapter 4, Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions, not just mine, our transgressions. Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. So theologically speaking, Jesus is staring down at sin that's heading his way, he is preparing to die in our place, and you know how it ends. He dies on the cross, pays the price for our sin, so that those who place their faith in Jesus can experience freedom from that weight, from this ongoing, continual weight that's pressing down on us because of our sin. But remember, the disciples who were with Jesus, they were physically present, but spiritually unaware. Look at verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So this idea of, look, I brought you three over here because you're my guys. I brought you three with me because you're my boys. And I need you, okay? I'm grieved, I'm hurting, and you guys, especially you three, Peter, James, and John, you guys who argue about who's the greatest, you guys who say that, like, they might betray you, but, but, but you never will? I'm overwhelmed with the sadness of what I'm about to endure. So guys, I need you. Keep watch. And the disciples, of course, physically present, spiritually unaware, they don't see the gravity of the moment. And so in verse 39, it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. When was the last time you fell to the ground on your face 
and prayed. It's been a minute, hasn't it? Me too. And he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Can you feel the intensity of that moment? But the question many people have is, Kev, what's the cup? You know the cup he's alluding to? It's the wrath of God. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what's called the great cup exchange. The cup of wrath that's due us is now being given to the Son. All Jesus had known was the love of God. Oneness was the Father. And when Jesus goes through that cross, he's going to experience for the very first time separation from God. When Jesus is on that cross for you and for me, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, all the sins of the world, all the weight of the world are pressing down on him. It all together, all of our sin come together and it comes on him and the father has to turn his back on the son while the son pays the penalty for our sin. All of that now is on Jesus' mind when he says, if there's any other way, can this cup of suffering pass on from me? But not what I want. I'm willing to submit whatever you want. Whatever you want, that's what I want. Church, this is a very, very significant prayer. In the first century, there's something worth noting that many of us don't realize. In the Roman culture, what would happen is if you were a Roman citizen and maybe you were in the military, you're a Roman soldier, and a bunch of you together uh, committed treason and you were to die, or maybe insubordination and you and all your boys were supposed to die, what they would do is they would line you up in a row. They would take a cup put it at the very beginning, and they would fill that cup with hemlock, which was a poison that would kill you. And they would give it to the first soldier and say, drink as much as you'd like. And you had a choice to make. Do I take that cup and drink a little bit, kind of get sick, pass it down? If you do that, that's cowardice. That's disloyalty to your brother's. Or do you look down the line and pick that up and take one for the team? Just drink the whole cup all the way to the last drop. Psalm 75 says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The interesting thing about this cup is that Jesus wasn't passing it to anyone. He was taking the full punishment of the wrath of God upon himself so that all of those who were in line, which is us, who are worthy of death, which is us, that he would die in our place so that we might live. Church, that's the great cup exchange. It's the beauty of the gospel. We've committed treason, insubordination, worthy of death. It's the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And this weight is so heavy. Luke's account says that his sweat became like drops of blood, like he was bleeding. And I thought about that, and I thought, when's the last time I prayed so hard, I just perspired? Like my wife came home and said, Kevin, were you out mowing the lawn? I'm like, nope, praying. 
That's never happened. I've never got sweaty praying. Here, this guy's like bleeding. I thought, man, I don't know about you. Maybe you pray like I do. And I'm not proud of this, but sometimes you're like, all right, Lord, let's pray. I start to pray, and I think about my to-do list. And those squirrels are on the bird feeder again. And I can hear that sound, and you're like, I hate those squirrels, right? And then you start thinking about your day, and like, what's that over here? And what's that over there? Amen. Right? And then you're done. And you stop praying before you ever even started to pray. I thought, is that the way we pray? But that's not what's happening here. In this moment, they struggle. And Jesus is fully vulnerable right here with the Father. Disciples are struggling, but right here, the Son is fully honest with God. God, I'm in agony. God, I'm in dread. If there's any other way, like I'm totally down for an audible, you want to call an audible right now? Let's run that play. Yeah, let's run that play. But if this is what you want, then I can trust you. If this is what you want, I'll submit. And so after Jesus prays for a while, he's going to go in verse 40 and check back on his disciples. It says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an, an hour? He asked Peter. Now, before we hate on Peter too much, it's one in the morning. They've just had a full meal, four cups of wine, and the dude prayed for an hour. So let's be careful on the hate for a second. There's a, there's a lot going on here. But Jesus does look at them in context and is like, guys, guys, really? Like, seriously? Are you kidding me? I'm in agony needing you, and you guys are taking a cat nap? Like, man, that's messed up. Because Jesus needed them with him. But what's our line this morning, right? Physically present spiritually unaware. They didn't understand what was happening. Jesus is in the battle of his life, and literally these guys are sleeping in the time of his greatest need. You ever been there? Where you needed someone in your life to be there for you. Whatever was going on in your life, you needed your friend you needed your best friend to show up. You're in agony. You're in distress. And you're expecting this person to be present with you. And they just fade away. And you're like, man, that's messed up. Like, I was counting on you. Like, what happened to you? I thought you were my friend. I thought you were there for me. Have you ever had someone in your life like that? And then you felt the fear. And you felt the abandonment. And you felt the betrayal, and you felt the sadness, and you felt all alone. Well, if you've ever been there, you know that is a very, very desperate place to be. But look at verse 41. Jesus says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He shows them some grace of a late night and a big meal and cups of wine. It says that Jesus went back to pray. Why? Here's what we miss. Because Jesus' security, Jesus' identity, his significance, his calling, his value, his mission is not found in anything on this earth. Jesus went back a second time to what? To pray. He goes back to prayer. And I thought, is that what I do? 
Most of us, we pray, I got nothing, guess it's up to me. I guess I better get busy. Jesus is like, no, I'm going back to the one who promised that they would never leave me or forsake me. I'm going back to the one who says that he gives to his beloved even while they sleep. Jesus goes back to prayer. Why? Because where else are you going to go? Because you're not as good as you think you are. Same here. That finger is going right here. Kevin, you are not as strong. You are not as smart. You're not as gifted. You're not as resourced as you think you are. Where else are you going to go? No one on this earth can be as consistent in your life as God can. And so in his time of prayer, the father confirmed his identity and his calling. The father reminded him of his love and gave him the strength to carry on to do what God called him to do. Jesus in this moment is physically present and spiritually fully aware because of his delight in the father, because of prayer. If you are spiritually unaware, you need to check your prayer life. If you are going through your day at work, at school, wherever life takes you, and you are unaware, you're just walking through life, missing the road signs of God, you need to check your prayer life. In the dark night of his soul, Jesus knew through prayer that he was going to be okay. He has no reason to fear. Prayer does that to you. Does that to you. So in verse 42, it says, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. See the press again? Three times. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Do you see the garden of Gethsemane in his life? Because you're now spiritually aware. God, I submit fully and completely in your plan. Not my will, but yours be done. And he's less than 12 hours from death and he's still praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, not mine. Verse 45 says, then he returned to the disciples and said to them, seriously, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I looked across the mountain, and I saw the sun gate. That's where Judas came out with all the people holding their swords. It's about a 15-minute walk from that gate to where I was standing. I walked it. It's the same path. It's been there for thousands of years. It's interesting, what, one of the things they said is, you guys in America, you measure things in decades and hundreds of years, aren't you cute? We measure things over here in thousands of years. That path has been here longer than anybody in your whole life has ever existed. What would you be thinking if you're praying and you heard the clanking of swords and you saw them at two in the morning walking across the mountain, you saw the torches and you knew at the front of the line was your boy Judas. That's what he's seeing. In Mark's account, it says that the disciples didn't know how to answer. When Jesus came back and woke them up, Mark's account says they didn't know how to answer him because they were so embarrassed. I think they're embarrassed because they're beginning to realize that they just might be missing something. Because when they look up and they see Jesus and he's got blood on his clothes from prayer, 
He's got blood. He's got matted hair from praying. And they're like, oh. And they're beginning to see the magnitude of the moment. And so as we wrap this up, can I just point out a couple things real quick? First, when difficulty came, Jesus turned to prayer. In his hour of difficulty, his dark night of the soul, Jesus went to the Father because it's the most critical, life-giving, peace-granting, affirming, and securing thing we can do. That's what he did. That's what he modeled for us. And that's something I think we need to learn. I think a normal daily practice of cultivating prayer in our life would be huge in helping us to be more spiritually aware of what God is doing in our lives. If we would stop shooting flare prayers to God while doing other things. Most of us are like, I'm going to pray while I drive to work. Really? I mean, we can sort of, but that's like saying I'm going to have an intimate relationship with my wife while doing something else. How's that going for you? How does that work? Because you're like, hey, right here, as my wife says, look at me. Put down what you're doing. Maybe that's just my wife. No, no one else in here seems to agree with me there. How are you doing focusing on him? On too many days, I'm physically present and spiritually unaware. If you want to be more spiritually aware, pray. It'll change everything in your marriage. It'll change everything in your parenting. It'll change everything in your world. Second observation, when Jesus turned to prayer, his reliance on other people got less Unless, Like, do we need other people in our lives? Yes, we do. But some of us are depending on our spouses or we're depending on our kids or depending on our parents more than God. You're getting your identity from your kids. You're getting your identity from your workplace. You're getting your security, your calling, your value, your need. You're getting all of them from someone else. And until we make the switch from them to him, you will never be spiritually aware. You will simply be physically present. Because people are going to let you down. You know why? Because they're people. They're people. They don't always mean to. They're just people. But there is one who says, I'm never going to leave you. And until we learn to rely on him more than anyone else in this world, we will continue to have calling issues. You will continue to have identity issues and significant issues. You will continue to worry, experience anxiety, and more. We have to learn to go to him first, and then don't go to your group of friends and ask them what they think. You know what Jesus did? He went back again in prayer. He went back again and again and again in prayer. Let's do that. You want to see revival in our city? Start there. Pray and pray and pray and pray. Final observation. His time of prayer enabled him to endure the cup of suffering that was before him. And I don't know what you're going through right now. I know that some of you have lost loved ones recently. Aging parents, the death of a child, financial woes that are overwhelming you, loss of a job and you don't know what to do, you don't know what your, your future holds, you're wrestling with who you are, 
Your kids are out of control and you can feel the weight of the world pressing down on you. The pressure is overwhelming and all of that is very, very real. But can I just by way of perspective assure you of one thing? That whatever cup of suffering that we're drinking right now, his was worse. His was worse and he dealt with it through prayer. His was worse, and he dealt with it through prayer. And so if he did it that way, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, I thought maybe we should do it that way. Maybe we should evaluate how tenacious, how persistent, and just how authentic and real and consistently we pray, because he's inviting you to more. And prayer allowed him in this passage, and really in his entire life here on earth, to be physically present and spiritually aware. It's the only way verse 46 makes sense. How can a dude who's about to be arrested, knows he's going to get beaten and crucified for the sin of the world, who's just felt the weight of the world pressed down on him through prayer, how can he look at them and go, rise up and let's go? How can he do that? Jesus sees the torches coming. He hears the clanking swords coming his way. He knows that Judas, one of his very own, is leading the charge. Church, prayer, through it all, will move you to rise up. In the dark night of your soul, prayer moves you to go. You know what? Let's go. Never, ever, ever forget to pray. Pray. 